Welcome to Loop Me In, the podcast community for parents and carers on raising children with disabilities. Join presenters Dr. Lisa Interligi and Christine Christopoulos and their guests on sharing experiences, information, and support ideas to help children with disabilities flourish. Loop Me In is brought to you weekly on platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, to name a few. You can learn more, connect with the Loop Me In community, and listen to more episodes on our website, loop-me-in.com.au. Hi, Pam. Great to have you on today Um, and great to see that you're in Noosa. So you're obviously a little bit shielded from our lockdown here in Melbourne. Yeah, fortunate person I am, I think. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, And uh, we're really excited to have you on because both um, Chris and I have had um, experience and and, uh, worked out children have worked with you a long time ago, actually. But um, it's great to see each other and um, great to hear what you're doing and and hear some experience that you might be able to give to our listeners. Um, So maybe we'll just start with asking you um, a bit about why you became a psychologist in the first place. Okay, it's a long time ago. Um, I, I was actually, I was working, teaching in a TAFE college with um, kids who mostly come out of special education, but I was doing uh, postgraduate studies at the time. And, um, and, I, and when, I, when I, I got, I was lucky enough to work with a man called Laurie Bartak, um, who was at that time, very influential in understanding autism. And then there was Bruce Tong from Monash and a colleague of mine from Adelaide, Verity Vatroff. And uh, we did our, Verity and I did our research with those two people supporting us. And um, so I ended up, you know, sort of in the field of autism, partly because quite a few of the people that I had in the program in the TAFE College had a background of autism. So it all became very interesting and it just grew from there and I then came out of TAFE and decided, well, I'll go into practice and see what I can do. And started, and all these small children started arriving. Yeah. <laughs> very little, some of them were very little. And, and how did you get involved with ABA therapy, Pam? Did that come shortly after that? Yeah, it was a little while after that and I was really fortunate because some of my clients were starting to um, work with people coming in from America. So there was a man called John McEachan who'd worked with Ivor Lovas. And I was absolutely blown away when these programs started with the children I was seeing because for the first time ever we had um, something that we could offer families rather than, you know, just we'll help any way we can. But you know, just watching these children sit with their therapists, you know, for their three hours of a session and so on, and watching what happened with those children, you know, the ones that hadn't been able to say anything, didn't play, started to play, etc. And I was, those outcomes are definitely not the same for any, everybody, but, you know, at least we had something. We had something that, um, that we could get our teeth into and that we could help with with the children and and as we did that sometimes then we got to um help with the behaviors in fact more often than not we got to help with behaviors we kept saying the children because they were hot housed really we ended up with these lovely children 
and um, they had different abilities, but they were often lovely, just great to be around. And just explain a bit about ABA, just so that people understand what it entails. Yeah, it's um, it's it's actually uh, interesting now because I notice whenever I'm writing up NDIS information that I'm not necessarily meant to say ABA anymore. But you know, say intensive early intervention, but we started with ABA therapy. We understood it as ABA therapy, and I think it got adjusted in many ways to an Australian market um, because it was a program coming out of America. And so the process was, um, it was intensive. So usually I I used to say 10 or 12 hours a week was a bare minimum. Mm. Children working on one, one on one with a therapist. The therapists came from all works, walks of life. They, you know, there were people that had worked in banks and people that were studying and people that had been teachers and so on. So they're all from all over the place. And um, if they were the right person, they really stuck with it and uh, and they stuck with their families, sometimes for years and years, actually. And the, um, the for the child, there was this structured program with a huge amount of fun and play and interaction in it, but it was just it was just teaching really you know so there's a little person that I see at the moment going through this process and the you're just watching that child who was not accepting any information really from the outside world now can't wait to sit down with a therapist a tiny person tiny child and and do these activities and and interact with the therapist via the activities at the moment, just loving them. And you think, wow, that I don't think it could happen unless you had that process mm. of structured teaching, the amazing people that do the work, and the fact that the child just knows what's coming. You know, we had all sorts of buzzwords. You know, we wanted 80% criteria and, you know, all sorts of things. But the main thing was that the children knew what to expect and they knew when they'd got it right and they were happy to then, you know, do it again or do it again the next day and eventually use it in the rest of the world, whatever they were learning. So it might be learning to make a request or it might be learning to, um, you know, just to... Uh, finish a puzzle anything it was there were so many there were so many activities that we tried and did and made up as we went along and people made things you know now we can go to various ABA versions of shops and buy all sorts of wonderful cards and things but our first cards were pieces of cardboard with you know a picture of grapes cut out and stuck on it you know so um <laughs> we had <laughs> we had we had no materials. We had to, everything had to be made. So, what, what's what really wonderful about ABA? Because we did ABA for a while with Louis. Was that um, there's a sense of success or um, you know being able to do something successfully, and yeah. um, and so I think that kind of positive reinforcement for the kids is really important in a world where often they're not getting that positive reinforcement. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so and being able to. We could see progress because we were very detailed with our record keeping. We could say, 
that this child now knows how to clap, how, how to copy clapping hands, whatever it was. Yeah. Where they hadn't known how to copy clapping hands at the beginning. So there were all sorts of things that we knew were crucial that they needed to copy. They needed to copy actions and sounds and words and 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 activities and sequences from another person. And once they could copy, then you opened a learning opportunity for them. Yeah, I think what you mentioned before about structure, I think that's crucial, isn't it, to any type of therapy we do with these kids? Mm. Yeah. And we saw it again and again. I think that was the fortunate bit, you know, that we could, um, you know, it wasn't just one child where this we could see this progress or we could see that the structure helped them with behaviour or with interactions with others, but we saw it again and again and with very different children. And I think that was the crucial bit. We had, you know, children who had quite serious delays and other children who were already reading words at the age of three years. You know, there was a huge range of potentials. Mm. So how does that how does that flow now into you know dealing with behavioural issues? Because um, you know I guess that um, that that's one of the most challenging things um, when you have a child um, of a, you know with additional needs and particularly um, with autism um, is that how 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 do you actually as a parent try and um, deal with those issues as they emerge. And in Louis' lifetime, we had lots of different phases of that. But, um, yeah, so just generally, what, what's your advice? With behaviours, in the beginning, I, I suppose I'm still thinking, you know, under the umbrella of ABA, but, of course, once we got past that, we were dealing with behaviours for all sorts of reasons. We might have been dealing with behaviours at school or at home. Sometimes those behaviours were relatively minor, I suppose. might have been something that was a bit antisocial, like spitting or something like that, or it would be, um, be, could be potentially quite harmful. You know, the, and so the difficult, in terms of the behaviour, we looked at a teaching process always. So that's, I suppose, where the ABA process informed what to do about the challenging behaviours because... If we were going to create a difference to those behaviours, then we had to be able to um, assist the children with learning a new behaviour or an adjusted behaviour. So it wasn't enough to try and get them to restrict the behaviour that was causing a problem, but they had to learn something new. And so then they needed practice and... So it came back to that process of how are we going to get this sort of practice? And quite often it was the parents that were having to put in this. If there was no actual program in place at home, then it was the parents that were going to have to put this practice into place. And it would come back to the same, the same systems, I suppose. We'd look at what was, you know, what were the antecedents to the behaviour? And then of course the behaviour. And the consequences, what was either um, reinforcing or, or providing an opportunity for the child to continue with the behaviours. And so a little bit of recording would go in about, you know, when did they occur, who, who was the child with or the person with, and, um, and what sort of cognitive abilities could they bring 
to the table about shifting those behaviours. I'm sorry, as I talk about this, you know, I keep thinking of the <laughs> amazing range of challenging behaviours that came across the table. But, you know, we would look, obviously we'd look for triggers and, um, and potentially record those and then we would look for what was maintaining the behaviour. And sometimes, as I know, because I've got five children of my own, sometimes what was maintaining the behaviour was the parent just giving up, you know. So if the child was screaming for X, <laughs> then sometimes X was provided because that was a lot easier than finding another way to get past that behaviour. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was talking to somebody yesterday who's um, grown-up person, wanted something, and decided to behave very badly to try and get it. And then we, the difficulty was, does that person get this or not get it because of the behaviour? Now, but if the person didn't get it, then it could be dangerous, okay? Not necessarily in that situation, but there's always that potential. If the, if the need is uh, perceived to be great. So, um, so... Sometimes you have to sort of problem solve on the run and we can't always not give in. But every time we do give in to some version of, um, I suppose, tantrum, then we're going, the child's going to use it again and probably escalate the next time. And that's the difficult thing. And that's true of any child. Mm. So one of the things was always with children on the spectrum that they needed to know the same limits as other children did. They couldn't run amok just because they had a different background. Yeah, and I think that happens sometimes, doesn't it? My other two kids always say that. Matthew gets away with anything. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. It's, and I, you know, it's, it, why, why wouldn't you want to keep yeah. comfortable and happy? So, um, so then... It was always that difficulty with how do we react to this, you know. As you know, we'd have planned ignoring in ABA sessions, you know. If the child did X, then we'd potentially turn our head away and then, you know, after a certain amount of time it elapsed, we'd just turn back again and continue with maybe the same demand. So there were things, you know, there were all sorts of processes like planned ignoring, um, or trying to redirect the child, you know. So um, we know that if, um, if if we can put this thing in front of the child, then they'll forget about that thing or they'll move on. Um, there was always that notion of how, how do we get a child to follow instructions? So um, with, and that, that was obviously in ABA, there was a huge, you know, there was a huge process of compliance and cooperativeness, which meant that if I've said, you know, put your hands on your head, hopefully the hands will go on the head. Um, I'm talking about the little kids when I say things like that. But it was just the following an instruction. And, you know, I used to sometimes say we're not under voice control yet. But another big issue with challenging behaviours was safety. So was the child safe? Were people around him safe? Were things safe? And um, so there used to plan, there would be a lot of planning went into that. 
And so for some children, all they needed was a withdrawal space. Mm. So this is if I'm in this mood and I withdraw to this space with these activities, then I'll feel better and I can come out and continue. And so they could potentially learn a process of self-regulation um, and be able to say, or, or a parent to be able to say, uh-oh, I think you're at a number four, um, what, what would be the best idea? And the person could say, this is what I'll, I'll, I can withdraw and I can do these things and then I'll... Um, then I'll adjust. But that's a bit like wishful thinking. It didn't always work. Mm. And as uh, often in autism, the emotional regulation is one of the big issues. Uh, how do, if I'm sad, how do I make myself feel better? If I'm angry, how do I calm down? There's, it's really hard for them, self-soothing. So now we've got lots of things like mindfulness um, and uh, we've got, We've had for a long time, we've had the social stories which would provide the adjusted behaviour. So, you know, if I'm asked to get out of the pool, I swim to the side of the pool and I get out and when I get back to the centre, I will get whatever was on my prize list because I did such a good job of you know, managing myself. So we would, have, we would have the notion of where there was going to be a problem what it would look like if the person managed themselves and what the reinforcement was going to be. Um, those versions of self-regulation needed to be practised daily, and that was the hard bit. Mm. It was fine in a school or centre setting. It was a bit hard to ask parents to try and have a practice daily um, of some process of adjusting a behaviour. And, you know, we've always had to be mindful that there's so many things to do and it's limited resources and to go through, even if it's only a five-minute process of practising something, can be really difficult for a family. So sometimes we would be able to do that with a little video, okay, put the video on and the child can practise it that way. There were various ways around it, but it was still hard. And I guess keeping it consistent in the school or the day centre that they're at too, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And you did a great job today. I thought you did that sort of social um, social reinforcement that you can do so easily in a centre. It's actually more difficult to do that at home. You try and remember to do it, but it's quite difficult. And it's coming from the same person all the time, so it becomes less interesting. Yeah. A lot of considerations about what was the function of the behaviour. Was the child trying to escape or avoid? Did they always have a meltdown when you put a maths task in front of them? Did they always have a meltdown when you said no to some some desired um, object or event? You know, so there was always there was always that you know a lot of ideas, especially coming from an ABA background of what do we know about the behaviour? What the person using that behaviour and what will be the teaching process that will help them use something different. So, um, and I think I mentioned before when we were just having a chat, the other thing that used to worry me a lot was stimulation. So mm. uh, I used to just sometimes think, especially in some settings, is this just a function of being understimulated? Um, this mm. Whether it would be lashing out or harming self or 
you know, loud screaming or anything else um, or absconding. It would be, it's, you know, it's, is there something in this environment which is, even though many things are good, but it's not meeting the person's needs? I think we're finding that at the moment, aren't we, through COVID, <laughs> the lack of stimulation. Yeah. And when you think about it, for children, if they've had ABA, you know, they've had all that version of stimulation and there was a lot of it, you know, on one, end, one way or another. And then there's the school environment where they are actually learning. And I'm not too sure sometimes whether there's enough, you know, it's probably just a private thought, shouldn't be expressing, but whether there's enough emphasis placed on learning once they're adults. Mm. So, um, you know, because I don't think, you know, most of us shouldn't have a use-by date when it comes to learning. Um, no, we agree with you, Pam. What we uh, It's one of the things that we talk most about, I think, now, Chris, isn't it, about... Um, yeah amongst our group, you know, about whether our kids are getting that learning opportunities and that stimulation to keep them developing because you're right, they um, nobody has a use-by by date and with neuroplasticity you'd hope that, you know, that everybody gets a chance to keep growing and developing their brains and, um, you know, we want the same for our kids. Hmm. Yeah. And, and if you think about that, you know, the, then there's always a potential that, that some of that could happen in a classroom-style environment or a, Outdoors, I don't know, it doesn't matter where it is, but, but there are so many things just with that notion of the skill development is here and if we add this little layer, what will that mean for the person? Mm. What about hormones, Pam? Um, because yeah. that's when I, I felt that there was a bit of a gear change um, in, in Louis's life was, you know, I think when he kind of hit teenage, late teenage years and, there was definitely a behavioural impact. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, one of the things that I've always felt for nearly everybody is biologically there are certain things that completely apply even though the person has autism. Mm. So, so I think that um, when they reach potentially early teen years, especially I'd see with the... Um, the children, I suppose, more in mainstream settings, they would um, be very distressed by the lack of social opportunities. They didn't necessarily know what to do about making uh, social opportunities, but they were, they were, you know, it was like a biological imperative. I don't know how to be part of a group, but I want to be part of a group. Mm. And then on top of that, of course, comes all those physical and hormonal changes, which is still true for everybody, without necessarily the outlets that other people have. And, you know, I still see a number of adult clients who are just waiting for the um, soulmate to walk through the door. I mean, you know, they're not interacting with anyone much, but they still think that that person will magically appear and that will make their lives okay. So, it's, it's not only that the physical notion of the hormones, but it's actually life's life opportunities. And so I think that, that you know, those limits that are imposed because, you know, if they're in, um, in, their, in their school settings, 
they can't necessarily express themselves as they would like to, you know, like they might, you know, they might want to tell someone they're looking good or they might want to just have an opportunity to um, just be part of a group and it's so hard for them. So um, I, I think I noticed that just the simply at the hormonal level, some people really struggle with it and, you know, you have a lot of, I suppose, behavioural outcomes as part of that transition from this stage to that stage and then the next stage. And other people it seems to pass fairly calmly and quietly. And it's and I suppose it's true of our other children too. You know, some of them we, we talk about raging hormones with <laughs> our 13 or 14 year olds or something like that. And yet, you know, another person might somehow manage that differently. And so what are you going to do? Because you can't, they haven't got the options that other people have. They won't necessarily have a relationship. They won't necessarily have an opportunity to be involved in a sexual relationship when they're old enough and so on. So they've, they've therefore got to be taught to manage it in different ways. And, um, you know, and, and it's still hard in, in, at a social level to have that management and very hard on families too, I think. Mm. And I don't know whether that process of denying that this is a big issue for them and, you know, therefore please go off to your room, you know, please. <laughs> so lots of lots of information. We can't sort of deal with this in the family space. We need you. <laughs> we need you to move away. And which is reasonable, absolutely reasonable. But it it also it it also leaves them with not very many fallback situations. Mm. And that's a really hard one, you know. So is it pressure of hormones and not being able to express that need the way they need to? And as others might, you know, they might just be off playing football every night and they're fine as long as they've exhausted themselves physically, you know. But um, so so there are a lot of things that vary enormously for the person with autism. And so then we say, oh, gosh, now what do we do? Because we've got hormones as well. And none of us really have a good answer. I wish I did, you know. <laughs> you know, besides, you know, all the things that we do to help them with management and there's many, you know, that comes back to that process of teaching again. Here's your, here's your management process and, um, and, and help, helping them with that and rewarding them for follow, following the process. Mm. I think one of the hard things that I learned um, early on, and, and I think it was a, a process of doing the ABA stuff, is that you don't, you're not kind of conscious of the rules that you're setting up as a parent or a family or in that context and the consequences. They're not obvious. So I remember when Louis was um, initially going to school and you know, he wasn't, he was very fussy about his eating. So he's eating Vegemite toast every morning. And then it got to the weekends and and I give him Vegemite toast because um, that's what he was eating at that point in time and he'd stop eating breakfast. And I couldn't for the life of me work out why he wouldn't eat, but it was because he'd associated the Vegemite toast with going to school and he thought that, that you know, that was a way to stop going to school. So it was a weekend, so I won't go to school, so I won't eat my breakfast, you know. <laughs> so I had to really rethink the whole idea of breakfast and what I was doing. But, you know, completely unaware. It took me months to work it out. And 
Um, so it is kind of being like a, a forensic detective trying to work out behavioural patterns and, yeah. and trying to understand the, you know, the what's the antecedent, as you call it, what's the causation factor and what's the, the behaviour and how that's being reinforced. So for him, he thought, great, I didn't go to school, so I didn't eat my Vegemite toast, so that's working for me. I'm never going to eat it again. <laughs> which which is amazing. And I'm, I'm glad you got there too because that would be, you know, I would have been sitting there scratching my head too because, yeah. you, know, you know, Vegemite toast works for him. So why wouldn't he eat it? It would have been a hard one. So. Yeah, we had, lots of, we had lots of those curiosities, but, um, but you, you're really not, you're not really aware of it until you you have to sit and unpack it, you know, and um, that's a real skill where a therapist or, you know, um, somebody would be really helpful to help you do that. Yeah. And sometimes it is just a conversation, mm. you know, like you might be sitting there with a person who, you know, potentially a therapist who has a background in, in autism and says, you know, oh, it somehow works out that the child's made that link like Louis did. Okay, mm. this, this works on school mornings. And um, and sometimes it's just a conversation. You don't, you don't actually, there's, there's no magic involved. It's only because you're exploring the issue and going, well, um, you know, I, I want breakfast to still go ahead on the weekends. What should I do? And sometimes it'll just be an experiment, you know, mm. like, you know what's what's the range of food and as we know sometimes that range of food's not very you know not very high which was always it was actually another behavioral issue with the children who literally only ate white food and so on there weren't a whole lot of them but there were always enough to be cause anxiety you know um, yeah where you would try to gradually um increase that range you know sort of minute amount by minute amount until some until they could be having something that was going to help build their brain mm. so so behavioral challenges didn't just come from the children you know who had tantrums or who lashed out or who hurt themselves it certainly came from you know the children who just withdrew or um or just you know or just uh just refused <laughs> their their compliance was poor and yeah. so normal things like get dressed or clean your teeth or something were just never going to happen mm. if, if they could help it. <laughs> if they can, yeah. And it's the triggers as well, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm very hard on families, that notion of how do I, um, you know, get this child through these steps every day and um, and still leave the house without, you know, us all being completely distraught mm. hours late or something. So there were there were plenty, but I'm glad you made that connection, Lisa, because that could have that could have been really difficult for a while. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Oh, Pam, we have lots of funny stories. Um, you know, like uh, I think one of my other funny stories with Lou, I've got lots of them, is, um, you know, we um, persisted because we love going on holidays as a family. So we persisted in going on a holiday and 
on a plane to far north Queensland and, you know, inevitably that flight, Louis would be screaming like he was going to die, like he was in an environment that was very close with other people. We always had a baby behind us crying. He was triggered because of his experience in hospital and, you know, there was it was just horrendous, you know, and we, we kept on doing it for years and gradually, um, you know, we kind of desensitised him and he got a little bit better and he'd watch his iPad and have his earphones on. Except if there was turbulence, he would yell out, oh, my God, we're going to die, we're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> and people would turn around like he knew something that they didn't know. <laughs> and, um, and eventually they, they would kind of laugh and we, we'd all be okay. Or when people stood up to get their luggage out of the, um, the overhead lockers when the plane had landed and you have to wait and he'd be yelling out, oh, my, oh my God, come on, come on, move. You know? <laughs> and I guess verbalising what everybody else was thinking but out loud. So luckily people had a, a sense of humour around him, but, um, you know, we, we got there in the end. But um, it did take a lot of effort. And it would be easy to give up. Yeah, yeah. And and isn't it amazing that you survived those? Because people do did give up. You yeah, know? that was that was hard. You know, there were always children who didn't easily leave the house. You mm. know, they would um, once they reached a certain age. It might be quite young, four or five. You know, that the whole family would be in the car, and you'd be, the family would be trying to move this child into the car, and it was a bit like. Yeah, attached to the door jam or something, you know, they just weren't going. <laughs> and um, and so and and incredibly disruptive. And and same as you're saying, Lisa, it was like you had to not give up. But it put everybody through a nightmare doing it, you know, like um, and it was there are so many things like, like that, you know, the the version of reinforcement was sitting in the car waiting for them and so on, you know, or the um or the, the favourite puzzle would be in the classroom to get them in the door. It's always that notion that you had to do a lot of reinforcement to get normal things done because, you know, sometimes um, we just talk about cooperativeness and we had this expectation that our kids would be relatively cooperative. You know, there was an agenda, the family were going out, whatever it was, and that we'd all fall in with the plan. And often, you know, the child with autism wasn't going to be part of the plan at all. Mm. And, you know, and I used to sometimes think, I've never been sure about that, but I used to think, gee, I wish I had the T-shirt that says this is what might happen or something, you know, like, yeah. like a, friend of, a friend of mine for her son with Asperger, she got a T-shirt saying, I've said hello and that's enough socialising for today. And, <laughs> and he was really, as a young adult, he was really happy to wear it, you know. <laughs> Because he felt, oh. well, now I don't have to explain. I've, I've got, I've got the information on the front of me. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I think we could listen to you all day, Pam. <laughs> That's nice of you. <laughs> There's so much there that I, you know, like even at the age of 21, you know, this is still happening for us with Matthew getting him in the car or taking him somewhere. Um, there's always. Um, a challenge and but then you know with a reward we get him there and it's what you said before it's little steps to get to where you want to get them in the end isn't there yeah and and it's creating at great cost to yourselves that bit of flexibility you know mm -hmm. so you know if that just that recognition that I'll be 
when I go out, I'll be safe. You know, I, I was talking to an adult today who said, I'm not doing too well at leaving the house, but I want to leave the house, but I'm not doing too well at leaving the house. And it comes back to the same thing. Unfortunately, to know you'll be safe when you go to X or you leave the house or whatever, you have to actually leave most of the time. You might have to go through a whole lot of steps to get there, but you have to actually do that. Or otherwise, the family ends up, you know, sort of, well, we just, it's too hard. And Mm. of course it's too hard. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. You know, when when those discussions were appropriate, we'd talk about, so how will I, how will you increase your flexibility? Mm-hmm. So that if something changes or if something or, or there is something to do that you don't really want to do, but you'll be able to still do it. How will that yeah. how will that happen? And um, you know, like like you said, Chris, it was often, well, we're gonna have to make it worth their while. <laughs> but you know, that's yeah. that's okay, you know, if that works. If that works and they learn that they're still safe, that's a good thing. Mm. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And um, as I said, uh, we haven't seen you for, for years and years and years, but um, oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely years. And um, but it's lovely to catch up with you. And um, and as I said, you know, having somebody in your corner that you think a, is an expert and um, knows what they're doing, uh, even if you feel completely out of control, is really valuable. And I really appreciate um, the support that you gave to us at that early years for Louis. Okay. That's really nice of you. Thanks, Lisa and and Chris. And I'm really glad to hear that the boys are together and that gives them, you know, a whole basis of Mm. their own version of safety. I have Mm. a friend. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, and it makes Thank a big difference. So much. Oh, yeah. I mean, when they're happy, they're actually together today, and I think they've just done seven thousand steps together walking. So, if they're happy, we're happy. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Okay, I'm yeah. glad okay. you got there. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. See you later. Thanks. Bye bye. Thanks for being part of the Loop Me In community today and joining our conversation on raising children with disabilities. Join us for the next episode on some of your favorite platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcast. If you would like to support us, please recommend the Loop Me In podcast to your network of parents, carers, and providers. If you would like us to cover a topic or invite a guest to chat, please email us at contact at loop-me-in.com.au or go to our website at loop-me-in.com.au. If you've got any feedback, please let us know so we can improve and cover issues you want. And of course, if anything in the podcast today has raised concerns for you, you can contact Beyond Blue on 1300 22 4636 or Lifeline on 13 111 4.